This is the audio version of Semester 47, a collection of personal stories we encountered while traveling on the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow to Vladivostok. We, that is, two Russians with an audio recorder and an Austrian with a camera. You can find all of those stories on our website, mesto47.org. Episode 3, The Lacemaker. Our first train leaves the Kurskaya station in Moscow at 9.30 in the morning. It's a four-hour ride, and of all the train rides we'll do, it's not only the shortest, but also the only one that doesn't go overnight. It's a modern train with seats grouped in four facing each other. And on this train we learn something that's obvious now, but we didn't think about it before. We're not the only ones who want to talk. We set out on this journey with the goal of talking to random strangers, wondering again and again how to initiate a conversation. But sometimes you don't have to. The train is fully booked and after taking our places, it only takes a few minutes before one of the other passengers asks us who we are and where we're going. The magic of the train conversation, it works both ways. But pulling out the recorder, that's a different story. The lady who started the conversation is a teacher called Aleptina. She told us how she got into a car accident with a drunk policeman and how the old ladies in her hospital room threw crutches at the cops who tried to blackmail her. You can read this story on our website, mester47.org. When I'm traveling, I love to collect tickets and other little souvenirs that I find along the way. Nowadays, transportation tickets are mostly printed on the spot, often in a machine on this bluish paper. But I know that Russian Railways has beautiful tickets with a golden foil stamp, if you buy them at the station. Unfortunately, we live in 2019 and like most of the passengers, we have booked all our tickets online. A passport and a phone is enough to get you on the train. We arrived at our first stop, Nizhny Novgorod. The city was kind enough to support us with a guide who picks us up at the train door. His name's Pavel and he works for the local tourism office. But with the old school suit he's wearing, he looks more like a KGB agent. The number on his tour guide ID, 007. Well, to be fair, your visa number was also 007 somehow, wasn't it? So you and Pavel kind of found each other, didn't you? And it doesn't end there. We leave the train station and he leads us to our ride, a gas 3102 Volga. It's an old car, black with a silver grill, and it looks like we're back in our favorite film genre. Spy movies? Yes, Cold War spy movies. When this car was introduced in the 1980s, the first users were the KGB and other parts of government. Now, Pavel did mention that gas is a local manufacturer and this is why the city has it, but I had this one question stuck in my head. Is this a charming old-timer that they keep as a sort of tourist attraction or is this just a regular car? You didn't have an answer at the time, but when something similar came up, you gave it a name. The Volga question. Yes, the Volga question. It came up several times during this trip and it boils down to this. Is what I'm seeing weird or is it a normal day in Russia? And always when it came up, I would turn to you, but you'd mostly be just as confused as me, shrugging and saying... It's a Volga question. Yeah, but for this one, we found an answer. It turns out that this car and some other classic Russian models are not as old as they look. Some are still in production. The Volga we were driving around in, feeling like Comrade Secretary himself, was produced until 2005. 
so we hop in the car and Pavel drops us off at the biggest event of the week, the International Kilt and Knit Festival. This seemed like a dead end for us at first, but it turned out to be one of the most interesting stories of the entire trip. As a side note, we'd like to warn our listeners that the following views can be disturbing and maybe offensive, especially to the LGBT community and women. But to be clear, they are not typical for the mindset of most Russian people. Now, let's go back to the festival. We get a tour through a killed exhibition that honestly doesn't excite us too much. When on our way to the exit, there is a very subtle sound catching our interest. The sound you hear is bobbins, hitting each other as a young artist is skillfully making lace. When we stop by, she actually tells us that in lace making, each bobbin produces a unique set of sounds depending on the shape and type of tree it was made from. Turns out, they even have a music festival in Vologda where the best lace makers join an orchestra on the stage. Anna, the lace maker, is 33 years old. She's been making lace art ever since she was 11. Her eyes shine when we ask her to describe what it felt like to try lace making for the first time. Училась в школе, и когда мы родители меняли квартиру на больше напротив нашего дома стоял, находился раньше называлось дом пионеров, дом творчества юных. Across from our house was the Center for Children's Crafts, and as a child, I'd look out at the window and watch how the girls were being taught how to do something interesting. At the time, we had no idea what lace making with bobbins even was, but my grandmother insisted that I try it out. It's impossible not to immediately fall in love with lace. For me, it was almost contagious. I fell under its spell. It amazed me with its delicacy and airiness. For an entire century, this rare, interesting craft was one of the most baffling types of needlework. Now when I tat, I don't even look at my hands. I watch the movement of the threads. Sometimes I'm sewing and then I'm surprised. How was I able to make this? Anna never stops working during the entire interview. She's beautiful. That kind of woman you'd probably stop your gaze at if you see her in a public place. She has brown hair, up in a braid, a gorgeous red dress with an elegant lace around her neck. Of course, she made that one herself too. I ask her what qualities are needed for lace making just to get some feeling what her own personality might be like. To actually achieve something with lace making, you have to have perseverance. You have to work and work at it. This is what sets lace apart from other types of needlework. With knitting, you can unravel it and knit it again. With lace making, the way you made it is the way it will stay. You need to have infinite patience. There are some work-related injuries with lace making. Joint problems, finger problems, osteochondrosis. You have to take some precautions. Don't tat for more than five hours a day. Take a break every 10 to 15 minutes. Just stand up and stretch. Even though I'm young, after sewing lace for 10 years, I also have some of these problems. Joint problems are scary because when you have pain in your joints and palms, it's hard to sew. If that continues, you have to take a break for a few days. If the pain doesn't go away, you have to go to physiotherapy. Some people even have to stop lace making entirely. 
Ну, самое страшное, это, конечно, суставная болезнь, если честно, потому что, когда болят суставы пальцев, The way she speaks is how a very educated, well-read person would speak in Russian. She chooses sophisticated, Tolstoy-like adjectives. In fact, she's so charismatic that some passers-by stop to join us and hang around to listen to the story. Anna tells us that lace-making came to Russia from Europe during the time of Peter the Great's government reforms. The European suit became popular and it had a lot of lace trimmings. She shows us a historic world map of lace-making from the 18th and 19th centuries. С очень интересной картой центров кружеуплетения, причем эта карта старинная. Ну тут вот Россия, вот Европа, да, страны. Apparently, they were making lace in Spain, Italy, France and the Netherlands. In Russia, there were 17 regions where people practiced lace-making as a craft to sell. In the 90s, when things were hard, the art almost completely died out. То есть страны очень маленькие, но на них нет живого места. Это Испания, Италия, Франция, либо Нидерланды. Originally, handmade lace was decor for the upper classes of society, czars and aristocrats. That's how it was in the past, and it's still like that today. People buy and wear this lace to emphasize their social status. The cost of the lace is determined by how many hours it took to sew it. So for me, it's about 200 to 300 rubles per hour. It all depends on the technique you're using and how big the piece you're tatting is, but it could be on average about 10 to 15,000 rubles. The market price for the lace that I'm wearing around my neck would be 13,000 rubles. Throughout the interview, I lose my focus. Watching her make lace and hear her speak is like staring at a fire. I could do it forever. Her hands move so quickly, her moves almost automatic, yet so light, so captivating to follow. Her fingers mix up with bobbins and they look so organic and natural together. Then we get interrupted. What just happened is that a colleague of hers invited Anna to join her on a trip for a masterclass. Anna politely declines. It's just that her husband wouldn't let her go anywhere. I stumble and ask, what's up with that? I live in a patriarchy. We are a traditional conservative family in which I am subordinate to my husband. That probably sounds harsh, but actually I was raised that way and don't know anything else. I ask him for permission every time that I leave the house. If we go somewhere, we go together. Even coming here, he only reluctantly let me come, but I said that it was for work, it's necessary. After I explained to him why, then he agreed. When I tell this to people, they say that my husband is a tyrant because he doesn't let me go anywhere. I grew up in a very conservative family, so I'm also more old school with conservative views. It's not just based on how you're raised. We're carved like this on a genetic level. 
не по маминой, не по папиной линии. То есть очень крепкий род. We have a very strong lineage. There haven't been any divorces, not on my father's side of the family or my mother's. Death was the only thing that separated spouses, so the marital lifespan in our family is about 45 to 50 years. For me, my grandmother was a powerful role model. My grandfather on my mom's side was an alcoholic, but it never even crossed my grandmother's mind to leave him. She always said, this is the person that I'm responsible for before God. Она всегда говорила, что это человек, за которого я ответственна перед Богом. Я не могу его бросить в болезни. I was originally raised with the viewpoint that there should be only one man in your life. And for a long time it really was like that. I had a really sad and unfortunate experience. The person who became my first sex partner wasn't able to carry the burden of this responsibility. It didn't work out ideally, but it was a fairly minimal experience in terms of intimate relationships. His family accepted me, but only as long as we weren't talking about marriage. Once we were drinking tea together, and his mom was talking about another girl they knew, a daughter of acquaintances, and judged her by her salary. Marusha is a good girl. She earns 40,000 rubles. I should have thought about that comment back then. They didn't consider me suitable from a materialistic standpoint. At the time, I was a full-time student. We separated under pressure from his mother. Now I think she'd be really surprised to know that I actually earn quite a lot of money. A couple years after the incident, Anna meets her husband. Ironically, on the internet. He is older than her by 11 years. She says that when they met, he understood that she was the woman for him after just 10 minutes of talking to her. She lights up when she talks about him. In our life together, we have never even had a conflict. We've never gone to bed angry. My husband has a down-to-earth profession. There's nothing creative about it. He studied to be a psychologist, and now he sells ventilation equipment. My husband values everything that I made for our house, the napkins and the icons that I brought to his home. He won't give them to anyone, even my mother. When my mom comes and asks to take something with her to work to show it to people, he'll loan it to her very reluctantly. Sometimes people come visit us, and it turns into a tour. He loves to talk about the things that I've created and show off the boxer shorts that I've sewn for him. I keep thinking, everything about her, her clothes, her manners, her views, the lace making from the 18th century, I just can't help having this feeling like I met someone who traveled here from a time machine from the past. As if she reads my mind, she calls herself a dinosaur in a modern society. In terms of today's trends, we're like dinosaurs dying out. It's pretty rare. The modern family unit looks very different. All the attempts our women have made towards emancipation, focusing on career, doesn't actually lead to anything good. Women feel flawed and family life suffers. Right now in our family, I earn more money, but when we met, my husband made more money. He owns the apartment we live in and has a car. I never used to earn money. I always would give to charity. I was always involved in art therapy. My husband directed me on this path. He helped me, taught me how to earn money, curbed some of my altruistic ambitions. At some point, he got laid off at work, and I started to make money. He's not just sitting around. He's looking for work. He's a very thoughtful and forward-thinking person. I'm unbelievably lucky. I'm very happy in my marriage. I always have a strong shoulder at my side. My husband is a very rare type of person. Right now, men like him don't really exist anymore. He's solid, strong-willed, and self-sufficient. 
We have a strong and harmonious family, and we do everything together. My husband is most content when I'm just near him. Then he's calm and happy. He tells me, just sit and sew next to me. As these words came out of her mouth, she must have read bewilderment and disapproval on my face. I shared with her a condensed version of my story, and I mentioned that I lived in the U.S. and Austria for the last five years. Anna answers that she despises what happens with the institution of the family in the West. Solid values are the moral backbone of our country, and there's no discrimination or inferiority here. What's happening to the institution of family in the West What's coming closer to us here, that's very foreign to me. It's horrible. My husband and I just watched a fourth movie with propaganda about same-sex relationships. We turned on the historical film, The Favorite. I thought it was about the king. It turned out that The Favorite was a girl, the queen's favorite girl. They showed their intimate life with all of this horrible stuff. The problem is that in even quite good movies, examples of same-sex love, heroes of that movement are shown as positive people. They love and take care of each other. This helps the perversion spread. Of course, it's been around since ancient times, but it's not necessary to popularize that, to show it and really implant it in society. We Russian people are orthodox people. Our nature is to oppose all of that. Boys should live with girls, men should live with women. It's a certain social order, a lifestyle. God created men as men and women as women so that the human race could continue. Each of us has a specific role in this. It has now been five months since we did that interview. And just like with many other people we encountered on our journey, we've stayed in touch. Anna asked us to send her the portrait that I made of her and Marina follows her on Instagram, pushing like from time to time on the photos of her incredible art or mushrooms she collected with her husband. Or perfect looking pancakes she made for him for breakfast. Funny how I feel I became a part of her life. And she became a part of mine. Sort of. After our long conversation, I'm still so curious about her husband, about their relationship. She mentioned several times she's happy. Is she really so happy that the moment she sees our microphone, she's ready to tell the whole world about it? Or is it just one of those cases when you think if you say something long enough, you start believing it yourself? I still have very mixed feelings about our conversation. Having close gay friends and believing in equal rights for men and women, I still feel angry about many things that she said. Do you know people who say something like, I'm not trying to discriminate, but... And then they do. Where is that line where your personal opinion ends and discrimination of others begins? But at the same time, despite this anger and disagreement, I feel deep respect, that she has her values that I don't necessarily share and she has the guts to stand up for them, and that she found her passion in lace making. And for me, even without understanding Russian, she impressed me with her confidence and skills. It was obvious that she practiced lace making for an innumerable amount of hours to reach her skill level. 
And I know she called herself a dinosaur and we compared her to a time traveler because of her conservative values, but you wouldn't know that when you see her. She's a young woman living in a modern society. She's got Instagram, remember? She uses it for her business. And this crazy combination is something that's puzzling me. Is it possible to respect someone with an opinion completely the opposite of your own? Maybe that's what the whole project is about. Respecting a diversity of views and trying to understand what shapes other people's opinions. Someone's worldview might be drastically different from my own, but that doesn't mean that they're not likable. I wonder how much would we really have to say to each other if we met for a cup of coffee? But she might not be allowed to come. Voice acting in this episode by Vanessa Brave. The music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Artyom Grishin is our technical advisor. Master 47 is a project by Marina Dmuchovskaya and Kiel Parna. The written story and photographs of Anna making bobbin lace can be found on master47.org.